what's good? Uh, welcome back to the Fricked Up for Film podcast. I'm James Hutton Brown, your host. And by the way, that jingle that just played, mm, I love that beat. So good. Uh, that's done by my friend Rick Nitty. Check him out on SoundCloud. Shout out to him. Thanks so much for doing that, Rick Nitty. I love you. You're a great guy. You make great beats. Anyway, um, let's get on to the podcast. What we're going to be uh, discussing today, let's go over the structure of the episode. Firstly, I just want to talk about the uh, last episode, just reflect a little bit and reflect on what I did good, what I what I good did, what I, what I did good, what I did bad, and, uh, you know, uh, various things. Then I want to talk about the uh, the section, uh, then we're going to go into the section of first time watching classics, and today's classic is going to be Life of Brian, the Monty Python film from 1970, um, 1979. Then we're going to talk about Disenchanted, the animated show, you know, the, from the creators of uh, Futurama and Simpsons. Uh, it was on Netflix recently, so I'm going to review that. Uh, then I'm going to just do a quick mention of what I've been watching and what we're going to review in the future, and that's the structure of the episode. Uh, let's firstly get into the reflection of the previous episode. Um, did I think I did well last episode? I thought I did a good effort for my first kind of podcast ever. You know, I've never done this before, but, uh, for my first episode, I didn't think I went as bad as I thought I would. I went fine, there's still a lot of things wrong, a lot of things I can improve on, but it wasn't that bad. Uh, it ended up, ended up being, you know, like a lot of things I forgot to talk about, like I finished the episode and I was like, ah, oh, frig, I forgot to mention, you know, the significance of 2001, uh, I wanted to talk about the plot, the, the fun facts and some of the analysis stuff, instead of just rambled on for, you know, half an hour or so. So there's a lot of things like that, um, I'm trying to improve on that, like to write about, you know, write more specifically in the notes beforehand of what I'm going to talk about to actually make sure I cover everything in the episode. So uh, just because I missed out on some of the things in 2001 last episode, I just want to quickly mention them now. Uh, I kind of wanted to talk about the significance of the film 2001 and uh, also talk about some fun facts because after the episode I thought you know what would be a really fun thing to you know include in my podcast just to make it a little more interesting the film I'm talking about I want to give some fun facts for it you know obviously I'm just probably going to read it off the IMDB page for the films because uh, the IMDB page for most films and uh, TV shows they have a lot of they have a section where you click on like fun facts and it's really interesting they have a whole bunch of fun facts for, for most films, especially 2001, there's a whole lot of fun facts uh, you can talk about. So I'm just going to be, you know, getting a few of my favorites off that list. So don't credit for me. I'm not crediting um, the fun facts. Uh, they're from IMDb. But I'm just going to be basically, you know, uh, discussing them anyway. So you don't have to go searching them up. Just something in extra interesting. I also want to talk about, you know, the significance, like, box office, you know, and some uh, quotes from critics and analysis, uh, various things like that, just to, you know, add some more meat, some more substance to my reviews, so it's not just me going, ah, yeah, I thought the uh, cinematography was great. 
uh, lots of lots of things like that. So it's a little more, you know, some more intellectual and some more fun, fun shit. <laughs> uh, it's like some fun facts, you know, for like little kitties. Um, that sounded wrong. Uh, we'll, we'll we'll move on from that. So the, the significance of two thousand and one. You can't deny that this film is honestly one of the most significant and highly acclaimed, you know, critically acclaimed, most well-known kind of film of of all time. You can't deny it. It's, it's one. It's up there. It's definitely up there. And a few things just to kind of, you know, prove this. I want to, uh, especially in mainstream and, and normie culture, I don't want to sound like a edgy memer, but like normie culture, I can show you even then it's, it's quite uh, significant. So, if you take a look at Google, you just search up best movies ever, word for word, right? Best movies ever comes up with movies. Uh, then it goes on to list a few things right at the top of, you know, those Google information boxes where it lists a bunch of movies. So, you know, it starts off Godfather, Citizen Kane, Casablanca. And then the 15th film, as you keep scrolling, is 2001. So yeah, it's definitely up there. Definitely up there if you search up best movies ever. It's 15. So uh, that's something to, to show. Uh, you search up movie classics. It starts off with Singing in the Rain, Casablanca, Citizen Kane. And then also on the 15th um, film is 2001. So there you go. Uh, that's just some simple, you know, Google searching. And that's, if that's this, like, the... Thing, the movies that show up um, with a simple Google search of best movies ever, and it comes up 15th, you know you've got a, got some proof as to how significant it is. Uh, there's a website called Ranker uh, on their list of the best movies of all time. 2001 is rank 49. And the uh, an IMDb list of top 100 greatest movies. Uh, this is the one that just comes up first on, on a Google search for the best movies of all time list. First IMDb list that comes up, this one. Uh, on number 21, 2001 is, is number 21 there. So those are just some few lists to kind of show how this film is, you know, is seen as one of the best films of all time in, in, in mainstream culture. And I'm not denying just because it's in mainstream it doesn't, you know, it doesn't mean anything, and not especially when I said normies. That was a little cringe. Uh, but you can't deny it's 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 definitely significant. Another thing I wanted to mention with the significance. Let's just take a look at the uh, Wiki, Wikipedia. The Wikipedia page for 2001 is is very long. Uh, box office. I wanted to mention the box office. The f this is a uh, quoted from Wikipedia. Uh, yeah, great source. I know it actually is a great source. Wikipedia is a really, really great source. I know a lot of people go, "That's just Wikipedia. Anybody can edit it." But honestly, like they have a, a highly regulated system that you know you have to have sources for what you write, and it's just such a great you know source of of information. Yes, it is. Anybody can write it, but they, they regulate who can write it and what they can. They need to back it up. They need to back it up with evidence. 
So don't don't just you know um, throw away Wikipedia. It's, oh, it's just it's fucking Wikipedia. It's a shitty source. Wikipedia's flipping great. Um. Anyway, the box office. The film earned eight point five million in theatrical gross rental from roadshow engagements throughout nineteen sixty eight contributing to North American rentals of 16.4 million and worldwide rentals of 21.9 million during its original release. That probably went through your head, or definitely went through my head, you know, straight over my head, sorry. Uh, let me take a look at uh, that IMD page, IMDb page, that'll make it a bit more clear. Uh, the film had a budget of $12 million. That's another thing I forgot to mention, the budget of the film I just wanted to marvel, I, I may have mentioned it, I can't remember, I just wanted to marvel over how amazing and beautiful it looked with such a uh, small budget, although when I say small budget, it was 1968, and I don't know if that's, you know, adjusted for um, inflation or not, but still, it's it's crazy. Uh, there we go. The cumulative worldwide gross of 190700 Thousand, and that's just the box office and again I'm not sure if that's adjusted for inflation or not but even then that's a big number so it was not just it's not just a critical uh, success in, in, in one of the greatest films it was also a great financial success and that that doesn't actually show how great the film was but it's interesting just to see that like critically acclaimed films and financially successful as films as well it's interesting to see that when they both double cross just to, it just goes to show how uh, you know intertwined the intertwined success of both financial and critical how it just comes out for with a, a double pairing of just uh, you know magnum opus of success uh, we're also going to talk about the uh, fun facts of 2001 and that, you know me, well you don't know me very well actually, but uh, uh, anyway, I do love some fun facts if you don't know me. Fun fact about me, I love fun facts, there you go. Uh, these are just a few facts from the IMDB page. Again, like I said, uh, the IMDB page for fun facts, especially for 2001, I'm oh, sorry, for 2001, the IMDB page for fun facts of the film, it's... It's so long, there's so many facts, I just couldn't read them all. There's, like, it's not usually that way for most films, but since 2001, I guess just because it's such an interesting and engaging film, not just for the actual film, but, you know, behind the scenes and everything. It's just... I guess it's so interesting, there's just so much shit to talk about, and, and so many fun facts to, to write about. Uh, anyway, here's some fun facts. Some working titles for the film were How the Solar System Was One and Journey Beyond the Stars. I do like the Journey Beyond the Stars film. I think that's quite cool, although it does sound a little cheesy, in my opinion. Uh, How the Solar System Was One, I think that kind of gives some insight into you know what the, the film is is kind of about all the the overarching themes maybe of you know how the I think the uh, light and speed uh, travel all those things especially you know towards the end I don't want to get into spoilers 
another fun fact. I'm going to read this word for word. According to Arthur C. Clarke, uh, uh, not word for word, uh, Arthur C. Clarke is the co-screenwriter of the film, Stanley Kubrick wanted to get an insurance policy from Lloyd's of London to protect himself against losses in the event that extraterrestrial intelligence were discovered before the movie was released. Lloyd's refused. Carl Sagan commented, In the mid-1960s, there was no search being performed for extraterrestrial intelligence, and the chances of accidentally stumbling on extraterrestrial intelligence in a few years period was extremely small. Lloyds of London missed a good bet. Uh, that's that's quite actually quite funny. So basically, uh, Stanley Kubrick thought, you know, oh, I don't want them being aliens, aliens being discovered before my film was released. Oh, I need to get my some insurance. Uh, uh, Lloyds of London, London, I assume they're an insurance company. I'm not sure. Refused. Um, so that's just something interesting about Stanley, uh, and and adds to you know kind of. Some something interesting about him because there is you know something inherently interesting about Stanley Kubrick when you look at his filmography and and to be honest I haven't seen all of his films I've only actually seen two thousand one and Full Metal Jacket Full Metal Full Metal Jacket but uh, you know just looking at these films and of hearing other people talking about them and uh, looking at what they're about uh, it's it's obvious like. He's a very interesting guy, and I do want to get into his filmography more, and and I hope I I do very soon. Uh, just finding more stuff about him because I know he is one of the, the most acclaimed directors of all time, and so that's just something that adds to the the interest of him. Uh, a few more facts before we get into the next section. In the premiere screening of the film, two hundred and forty-one people walked out of the theater, including Rock Hudson, who said. Will someone tell me what the hell this is about? Arthur C. Clarke once said, If you understand 2001 completely, we failed. We wanted to raise far more questions than we answered. That is actually very reassuring, because when you watch the film, especially in my case, I think a lot of people experience this as well, they go, oh, what the hell is that about? But then they don't want to, you know, speak out in confusion or afraid that they're they're dumb because they didn't understand it, but it's very reassuring when the co-writer co uh, of the, the co-screenwriter of the film says, "If we didn't want, we wanted to raise far more questions than we answered. You know, we didn't want the audience to understand it completely." So I think that's very reassuring and it adds a lot. If you're confused, don't worry, don't worry at all. That was the purpose. You were supposed to feel that way. Uh, and it also goes on to say, however, Clark did express some concern that the film was too hard to follow, and he explained things more fully in a novelization and subsequent sequels. By the way, that is a sequel to called 2010, The Year We Made Contact. Uh, I've never really seen many people talk about it, which is weird, and I still am sure, I'm still unsure if it's you know better or worse or it's crappy. It's such a weird... Um, like sequel? Why would you make a sequel to, to 2001? Uh, another fun fact: according to Douglas Trumbull, the total footage footage shot was 200 times the final length of the film. That is a lot, but I guess it's 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 not the case with every film. But it is the case with every film that they shoot more footage, or most films anyway. 
they shoot more footage, a lot more footage than, you know, the actual length of the film. So that's not that surprising, but 200 times is a lot. And I'm not sure if that includes, you know, scenes, like shots that are screwed up or whatever, but I'm not sure. Uh, the movie was not a financial success during the first weeks of its theatrical run. MGM was already planning to pull it back from theaters when it was persuaded by several theater owners to keep showing the film. Many owners had observed increasing number of young adults attending the film who were especially enthusiastic about watching the Stargate sequence under the influence of psychotropic drugs. This helped the film to become a financial success in the end, despite the many negative reactions it received in the beginning. That is so fun, such a fun fact, that you know a lot of the financial success it got was just a bunch of uh, you know teens and young adults going to the, the film like, yeah, dude, two thousand and one, that colorful scene at the end, dude, we're gonna get so high right now, and we're gonna. Go watch the end of the film. Dude! That's actually really funny, you know, just thinking how a lot of the the, the money that the film made was just, you know, stoners going, Dude! Uh, uh, another fun fact, uh, there is no dialogue in the first 25 minutes of the movie ending when a stewardess speaks at 25.38, nor in the last 23 minutes, excluding end credits. With these two lengthy sections and other shorter ones, there are around 88 dialogue, three minutes in the movie. Uh, that just goes to show, you know, how great it does at visually communicating the theme of the message and, you know, visual communication. That's, that's like, that's such a key thing in film. Like, it is a visual medium. It, it obviously does use verbal, but originally it's a visual medium. So I think sometimes that's a little underappreciated in some films and with a lack of, you know, visual storytelling and visual communication. So just adds to the, the sheer amazingness uh, of this film with that, you know, all the dialogue-free scenes. Another fun fact, Stanley Kubrick had several tons of sand imported, washed, and painted for the moon surface scenes. Another crazy thing, you know, just to show how, you know, uh, kind of perfectionist Stanley Kubrick was, because I have heard he was a bit of a perfectionist Stanley, um, I guess that just adds to his, you know, shows how he was perfectionist, washing all that sand. I don't know how you wash sand, by the way. I was thinking about that earlier when I read that fact, I was like, how the fuck do you wash sand? Like, that's... I don't get that, but, uh, anyway, um, yeah, that's the, that's the end of my fun fact section of 2001. Um, again, I just want to reflect a little bit more on the previous episode, and then we'll move on to Life of Brian. Uh, I think I missed the, the talking of the plot, like, the start of the review, and that's what I want to start doing with all my reviews, you know, just a quick summary of the plot, just to give some context with what it is about, if, if some um, listeners haven't even, like, if they don't even know what it's about, I do want to give some context. So I'll just be reading, or paraphrasing some plot from, you know, uh, Google or, 
Wikipedia or something like that. So that it's not from my like uh, head or my mind or whatever. It's just gonna be kind of reading or paraphrasing it off. Uh, spoilers. I think last episode I kind of screwed it up with the original recording when I forgot to mention like our spoiler warnings or whatever, and I did edit a couple of spoiler warnings in before the uh, Black Klansman and the 2001 review, uh, but I'll, I'll sort, the, sort that out for, for now, for the, it's not for now, um, from now on I'll sort that out, you know, with the actual original recording instead of cutting with the edits and going, you know, nah, guys, uh, this, this one might have a uh, little spoiler, spoilers, uh, I'll actually sort that out in the, you know, the actual recording, uh, recommendation rate, I do want to, with the reviews, I kind of want to put some type of, I don't know, I, I, I want to explain how important is, like, how important I think the film is that you should watch it, or, like, uh, how much I recommend it, basically, and I, I think I might, uh, implement a recommendation rate, just, like, out of five stars, like, five stars being, you have to see this, and, you know, like, one star being, like, yeah, just don't see it, if you're really desperate, maybe, you know, you know, stuff like that, I'll, I'll elaborate on it a little bit more, uh, another thing, uh, with the future episodes, uh, I want to implement also something else with the format, uh, just with the, um, classic, first time watching classic review part, um, with that, I want to implement a, you know, section of it where I edit in a couple of recordings of me, you know, directly before watching the film and directly after watching the film. And I've already done that for one of my reviews, so in a couple uh, weeks with the train spotting episode, that'll be when it's first implemented because I did that when I watched train spotting a couple weeks ago. Uh, I talked about uh, what I think this film is going to be about, my expectations, and I try to not look anything, look much up about the film before I watch it, and just say this is what I know or what I think it's about, and then directly after I'll explain like, oh, that's crazy, I, that's what happened, and like my initial reaction after watching the film. So I think that'll be a little interesting and some more meat to those reviews. So I'm going to try that out with the train spotting episode. So look out for that. Uh, another thing you should look out for is the review coming straight at you right now, which is the Life of Brian review. That's right. That was a pretty cool segue, if you ask me. Uh, you know, more like a swagway. Uh, so Life of Brian. This is a 1979 film. It's comedy, uh, it's a comedy, it's religious satire. It's also known as Monty Python's Life of Brian, so obviously it's, you know, also made by the, the comedy troupe Monty Python. Uh, and when I say made, it's, you know, it's written by and, and starred in and produced, uh, by Monty Python. You know, got, got all the original members, Terry Jones, John Cleese, Graham Chapman, Eric Idle, Terry... Gilliam and Michael Palin, I think those are the, the members, when I said original members, I don't know if they like added or, you know, like 
got rid of some members or some members left. I don't actually know. I'm, I'm not too familiar with Monty Python, but uh, I just assumed, you know, I think those are the main kind of members and who are known for Monty Python. As opposed to like, uh, you know, other external collaborat collaborators or whatever. Uh, so what this what this film is about, like I said previously, I want to give a little context with the plot. So I'm going to read the plot off of Google. Brian Cohen is an average young Jewish man, but through a series of ridiculous events, he gains a reputation as the Messiah. When he's not dodging his followers or being scolded by his shrill mother... The hapless Brian has to contend with the pompous Pontius Pilate and acronyms-obsessed members of a separatist movement rife with Monty Python's signature absurdity. The tale finds Brian's life parallel paralleling biblical law, albeit with many more laughs. Ah, oh, sorry, I screwed up with a, a few words there. I gotta get better with that. But so basically it's, you know, parodying kind of the life of Jesus and, and that time with the the New Testament with a character called Brian Cohen. And, uh, you know, he gets, he he's, um, he's seen as the Messiah mistakenly and he has to, you know, deal with that and Pontius Pilate and uh, the, the, the movements of the people's front of Judea. Uh, just before we get into the film, like, main film review section, I th I just want to give a quick spoiler warning. This will contain spoilers, although there's really not that much to spoil. Even if I do give, you know, spoilers away, it's probably just not going to ruin the story or all. It's not going to ruin your experience that much. It just might, you know, um, make some of the jokes fall a little flat if I've already given them away. Uh, so if you don't want like some of the, if you haven't seen it and some of the j jokes, if you really want to have a good experience with it, I do recommend it. Um, go watch it and then come back and listen to this review. But anyway, spoilers, let's get on to the review. Uh, so a little bit of a context as to, you know, when I was watching this, uh, it was a two or three weeks ago, well not two or three weeks ago, it was like three or four weeks ago, and I was looking for something to watch with my, my folks, my parents, uh, whatever you call them, I don't know. I was just looking on Netflix, and I was actually actively looking for something for a classic to, you know, watch for the purpose of this review. It's not just about the podcast, and I was like, I need to do something for a podcast. I did want to watch something, but I was like, why not find something that I can talk about on the podcast? And I also wanted to find something with a you know, relatively short runtime, because I was starting to get a little tired. Um, yeah, so I saw Monty Python... Life of Brian, and I uh, also saw, you know, Holy Grail, and they both had relatively short run times of about one hour and one and a half hours. So I was like, oh, we can watch one of those. There's actually a lot of Monty Python stuff on Netflix. I don't know if it's, you know, Netflix USA or whatever, but it's like on Netflix New Zealand, there's a lot of Monty Python stuff. There's, uh, you know, a few of the movies, and there's a lot of the, the shows and stuff. So there's a lot of uh, content I, I can and should be watching Monty Python because it, it is really great stuff. Anyway, um, we were you know around kind of choosing between Life and Brian or Holy Grail, and my parents wanted to, to they were kind of leaning towards more Life of Brian, just because they hadn't seen that in such a long time, and uh, you know they just felt like watching that 
instead of Holy Grail. Obviously, they've seen uh, they've seen both, but I think you know they'll lean towards Life of Brian just because they've seen Holy Grail um, more times. So you know, we chose Life Brian, and then uh, I watched it. And you know, before we started watching, I think my mum told me a story uh, just because you know she's uh, growing up. Her her family owned a cinema, so my my grandparents owned a cinema in a very small town. And uh, she told me a story about how you know the the priest or the pastor of the town told everyone not to go see the film. So my mum wasn't allowed to go see the film by her parents, even though they were showing it because they were the owners of the cinema. So that's quite funny. And she was like, oh, it's a little hypocritical, but it was you know, it's a funny story. And then, uh, you know, after um, I watched it and I searched up some stuff about it, I read a lot about, you know, the, the history behind it and what, you know, just the Wikipedia page, basically. And a lot of it was talking about the religious satire and how people got offended and tried to ban it in like small towns and things like that and there was one town that banned it until like 2009 I read and it only became, became like legal again in that, that town until uh, one of the cast members of the film uh, became mayor or something and I was like what? <laughs> That's crazy. Um, yeah anyway so there's a lot of like towns that banned it so a lot of networks that you know found it offensive some uh, companies uh, you know pulled out of the financing because they thought it might be offensive towards Christians, things like, oh, it's got blasphemy, especially with the financing, I think it was some kind of film network that pulled out of the financing the film, like, a couple of days before they were going into production, and they were like, oh, fuck, we're about to go shoot, and all the money's gone, and luckily, I think it was, what was his name, it was one of the members of the Beatles, uh, um... George Harrison uh, is a former member of the Beatles. Uh, yeah, so he provided uh, most of the financing because they were like, oh, fuck, we've got a couple of days before we go into production. And luckily, George Harrison was like, oh, yeah, I'll pay for it because he was a fan of the, the, the film. So they gave you know a cameo to him, and luckily that film was possible because of George Harrison. So thank you, George Harrison. I'm not too familiar with the Beatles, but... You know, sounds like a good guy. Um, I'm not too sure if he's if he's you know dead or not. I uh, quick search. Uh, yes, he is dead. That is sad. He died in 2001. So uh, R.I.P. George Harrison. Uh yeah. So anyway, yeah, we watched the film and I thought it was amazing. I uh, I really enjoyed it. Uh yeah, I thought it was you know a very special unique hilarious comedy and I was you can't deny I couldn't I can't deny that it was it is it was and it is definitely a classic obviously I can't deny that that's subjective it is a classic but it, it's definitely you know justified in my opinion like to be a classic like that's is definitely a reason like a reason and reasons as to why it is a classic uh you know I just I really love the humor in it I thought it was, it's great humor, a uh, humor, sorry, and that was really great because I find myself quite annoyed at a lot of, you know, comedy films, when I'm trying to find a, a comedy film, and I'm like, ah, oh, I watch it, and I'm like, I just, I just didn't even, like, laugh, it was fine, like, it has a comedic tone, but it didn't even, like, really 
like laugh and I kind of hate that and I guess when I watched this I wasn't expecting much because usually when I watch old comedy films because I have watched Airplane before but I watched it when I was quite young so I thought it'd be like that when I was like oh, I just didn't find like funny because I was I was so like I just didn't find it funny because I'm like that age uh, when I watched Airplane, which was like a few years ago, but you now I was like, I'll give this kind, of, you know, old comedy kind of uh, another chance because I, I, I was actually like, oh, I was probably quite young to really understand that comedy. I'm sure I'll find this funny, and I did. I did find it funny. It was, just, you know, it's just like my fun humor that like everybody can enjoy and doesn't take itself too seriously. So yeah, I really enjoyed the humor. And it really made me kind of want to check out more Monty Python stuff and I will because like I said it is a lot of it is on Netflix and it's really great just yeah that kind of uh, reaffirmed my my thoughts um, my suspicions that I should give you know Monty Python and this like kind of old especially old comedies like more chances that I probably will find it funny and the only reason I didn't find like Airplane funny a few years ago was that I was just quite young so now that I'm older I'm sure a lot of these old comedy classics I will find funny, and I, I did find this one funny, it was, it was really great, uh, again, I thought it would be, like, quite, like, more light-hearted, obviously, it'd be, at that time, it'd be, like, quite offensive with the comedy, because of the religious satire, and, uh, I assumed, like, at this time, to us, like, in this context, it wouldn't be that offensive, but it's actually quite a lot of, uh, accrued humor in it, like, you, you see, uh, I think it's Graham Chapman's, like, dick. You see him nude, uh, like, swear words and stuff. It's actually much more crude than I thought it would be. But then again, there is a lot of scenes that that could be construed as, you know, scenes that kids would find funny. I'm sure a lot of them kids would find kind of funny, like, not based on the religious um, satire. They probably wouldn't understand it very well. Um, but they'd still find that it's funny, because a lot of it is, like, just silly stuff. So I was a little bit confused after watching it. I was like, is Monty Python for kids? I mean, obviously, it's not, you know, just for kids. I mean, like, can you show Monty Python for kids? Because a lot of it was crude, and I don't know. So that's a question. If you have a response to that, let me know in the in the comments down below or on YouTube or whatever you're watching this. Um, you know, send me a tweet, and I'll give you my tw Twitter later. I really want to know, is is Monty Python kind of, is it suitable for kids? I guess I'll have to watch more Monty Python skits and things like that. Uh, but that's that's kind of an interesting question, so I'll pose that, see if anyone responds. I might talk about that in a future episode. Uh, that's something interesting. Uh, so, again, it's quite interesting how, you know, the context of when it was released, and you know, now, I can see why it was seen as offensive, and when it was released, it was the 70s, it's over 40, kind of, years ago now, I think, 40, yeah, like, 40, nearly 50 years ago when it was released, so I can see why people kind of found it offensive, but I think, like, now, obviously, churches and Christian Christians would are a lot more chill with it. And especially the general mainstream is actually a lot more uh, kind of atheist and, and less religious 
so it it definitely wouldn't be as offensive nearly as offensive as it you know was back then but even like now i think even to the point of some christians i think could could definitely enjoy this like there are parts that aren't as you know religion religiously based but are still inherently hilarious so i think like a lot of casual christians could actually really enjoy this so it's quite interesting how well, that's in my opinion i'm not too familiar with some religious people i'm a agnostic or atheist myself i'm not too sure i just uh, i'm chill with religion yeah i don't want to talk about that too much but um in my opinion i think a lot of casual casual religious people could enjoy this and, and find it funny because the skits and the acting and the you know just how they develop this, this the sketches and the scenes it is funny like you don't have to take it seriously and like comment on all the religious satire and the religious commentary and like oh yeah the god and blah, 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 blah. you know it's it's funny it's a comedy it's a satire it's not like i'm not saying people uh like you know over analyzing this film or getting up in arms it's more so in the 70s i don't think many people really care anymore about this like film when i say care like they don't find it offensive or anything but it it is just a comedy they do have a little bit of you know religious satire it's probably it is good the commentary it it does add to it like there are good comedies that just make you laugh and this made me laugh but then there are like comedies that make you laugh and have something extra some more substance some style or whatever um and i think this is one of them you know it's got it's got some substance it's not like really deep substance but that that's not what they're going for it is a comedy so they don't need like a pounding uh pounding of deep substance you know with the film it's it's a comedy with a little bit of sprinkled religious substance and religious commentary uh, which i also really enjoyed like it, it's it's simple but it's not supposed to be like like not simple it's it's simple enough that people can actually understand it and see it without having like missing it or you know understand it but it's with the comedy you know what i mean but not to the point where it's it ruins the comedy or it just kind of fizzles out or so i think how they mixed in the comedy and the commentary i think they did a really good job with it you could say a nearly perfect job which I will segue on to the tone of this film. This movie honestly has an absolutely perfect tone. Uh, like I just said, it's got a great mix of you know comedy and commentary and uh, themes and uh, you know various things. I think it it has a perfect mix and so a perfect tone. Like very, very rarely I see a movie that has a perfect tone and i never really used this to describe movie before but when i watched it i was that just came to my mind i was like boom it's got a perfect tone like that's just that's just how i thought you know you can describe it it's got a perfect tone like i said it's got a, a perfect tone and a, a lot of things go into that you know the performances a lot of great performances obviously uh, very comedic i think you know a lot of the cast members were um you know played lots of different characters let me just find that fun fact for you 
here we go, six cast members played 40 characters. So there you go, you know, most of the characters and main characters in the ensemble were played by members of of the troupe. And you see that, you're like, oh wait, that guy looks familiar, the one I saw a few scenes ago, and it's, you know, there's your, your information, that it, you're right, um, it, it does, you know, they, they uh, you know, there's your information, the troupe played a lot of, you know, various, lots of different characters, and I think, like, they all play them, like, really well, very funnily, you know, comedically, strong comedic characters, um, so that obviously goes into the tone, uh, you know, it's a great type of comedy, uh, shot very much like a sketch, uh, basically, like, it's, it's shot very, you know, in, in a sketch comedy way, so not, like, elaborate, um, cinematography shots and various things like that, but saying that, it, it, it's, it's done in a way that makes it feel, it makes it feel realistic, but still comedic, you know, especially how it's filmed in location in Tunisia, I think it was, with the uh, really great and realistic sets and, and costumes, and especially to do with the sets, uh, I heard, oh, I was reading that they used a lot of, they reused a lot of the sets from a TV show called Jesus of Nazareth, and it was shot the same place, so I think that's to do why, uh, with, you know, part of the reason why the sets were so realistic, because they just reused it from another TV show. And I love how they filmed on location, um, and... Uh, you know, even with the, you know, realistic costumes, and it adds to, you know, you know, kind of adds to the realism of the film. It's, it's, it's hardly realism, it's actually absurdist, but it, you know, adds to kind of the commentary of the film, and it kind of sets you in the commentary quite well. Um, there are obviously a lot of things that are unrealistic. The, the alien scene, which was one of the, the funniest scenes, honestly, when that came on, I was just, you know, watching the film, and it, then he gets suddenly caught by aliens and they go shoot another spaceship and oh, it's so funny. I was cracking up with that. It's just out of nowhere. Uh, that, that was probably one of my favorite scenes. Uh, yeah, no, so there's a lot of unrealistic things. Uh, if there was an unrealistic prop, it would be done for comedic effect. There was a shot when like this woman just like carrying on, carrying along like a big prop donkey, but like a big prop kind of puppet donkey or something like that. And you just, like, see it walking across the shot. That was quite funny. Uh, yeah, so to do with, like, the cinematography and the visuals, it's shot quite simply, but uh, it's perfectly for the tone they were going for. So the cinematography, obviously simple, but it fits with that perfect tone. And all of these things go into that perfect tone. Uh, I don't want to get too negative, because I, I really enjoyed it, but a few issues I had with the film... I, d I really don't have that many, like, serious issues with it. But if I had to criticize it, uh, mostly technical ones, like, there's a lot of sound issues, you know, mixing with, like, sound mixing. There's a lack of foley and, uh, like, layering of the sounds. Also, a lot of very grainy shots. But in saying that, you have to excuse it. Because, as I said, it was quite old and... Uh, and it kind of adds to the charm of it. Like, you look at the films at the same time, and even earlier, and they didn't have those kind of problems. Like, a lot a lot of the films at the same time didn't actually have those problems. But I guess you got to excuse it, 
because you know it was probably a low budget and it didn't really take away from the comedy of the film or the, the tone of the film it actually adds to it like it adds to the charm and obviously adds to the, the perfect tone so yeah like it wasn't aiming to be technically advanced or anything like like those other films with like Star Wars or you know 2001 were it was aiming to make a good comedy with some smart commentary and religion and you know despite some technical issues it completely achieved and you know went beyond making a perfectly you know it, it went beyond just making that it made a perfectly tonal movie and a, a classic so like for what they were going for they they hit it right on the mark right on the mark you know, they weren't aiming to make a perfectly looking great cinematography. I mean, to make, you know, this, this, this type of movie, exactly this. And they hit it right on the mark. Um, they, they didn't need to put a lot of effort into, you know, elaborate, um, you know, elaborate visuals or elaborate kind of commentary. They just, they hit it right on the mark. I'm just repeating myself over and over, but yeah, I think they they did what they wanted to, what they achieved, and you know they went they went beyond. They made a classic. Um, I guess that's mostly well, not mostly all I have to say in in my opinion about the film. Uh, also, I love the you know the the animated title sequence at the start. There was a there was a cool little mention. Also, I enjoyed the uh, soundtrack. I realized after the film, I was actually quite surprised that um, I heard, um, you know, what's the song? Always look on the bright side of life. You know that one? Uh, I heard that, and I was like, oh, that's weird how they use it. And I was like, I'm pretty sure I've seen it. I heard that before. Especially, I think it was in, like, a similar comedy. Then I realized, oh, wait. I heard that before in the the Spamalot musical which is based on, you know, Holy Grail. And I was like, it'd be weird that they used kind of the same song in one of their other properties. But then I, obviously I was looking it up and that song was recorded from, uh, like, for this kind of, for this movie. Like, it wasn't actually from Spamalot. Spamalot was made, like, a few years later. They reused the song from this. It was actually something really interesting I found out. You know, that song was made for Life of Brian. So I was like, oh, I did not know that, and I did not expect that. Uh, now I just want to discuss a little bit about the, you know, the significance and some fun facts of the film. Just some various little pieces of information I, I gathered from my research, mostly on uh, like Wikipedia and IMDb. But uh, we'll just discuss a little bit. I'm um, talking about the significance of this film. Uh... You know, it was, it's, it was voted the funniest comedy ever in Channel 4's UK, the Channel 4's, the, the 50 greatest comedy films. And uh, with that, I also, also read that, like, a lot of other various, like, magazines and things, it was, like, voted either, you know, the funniest comedy ever or, like, in, in a list of it. So it's in a lot of, like, the list of the funniest comedies ever. And I certainly agree with that. And it's definitely justified because it is a very funny um, film and it is probably one of the funniest, you know, and best comedy classics. Uh, here we go. 
Life of Brian has been has regularly been cited as a significant contender for the title greatest comedy film of all time, and has been named as such in polls conducted by the Total Film Magazine, uh, the British TV network Channel Four, the Guardian newspaper, um, uh, to Time Out, BFI, the British Film Institute, uh, American Film Institute, so. It, and uh, bowl.com. So there's a lot of uh, few, you know, establishments, media establishments that has been named in, you know, the list and on the top of some of the best comedy films. And you can't deny that. Uh, that's that's objective. And it's definitely justified, in my opinion. I think that's definitely justified. And I can see why. And I probably would, you know, rate it one of the best comedy films well, I've ever seen and and probably even ones I haven't seen I'm sure it is so so just some information there to you know give you some significance of the film I'm uh, just going to read a few quotes from some critics uh, especially at the time of release uh, this is mostly from Wikipedia so don't don't crucify me <laughs> Don't crucify me for saying, ah, oh, you just took it from Wikipedia. I know. That's what I'm saying. Uh, here we go. Vincent Canby of the New York Times called the film the foulest spoken biblical epic ever made, as well as the best humoured, a non-stop or- orgy of assaults not on anyone's virtue, but on the funny bone. It makes no difference that some of the root- routines fall flat, because there are always... Others coming along immediately after that. Immediately after that succeed. Yeah, so I, I actually really agree with that. Um, like you said, not on anyone's virtue, but on the funny bone. It's it's just a comedy. It's not supposed to really offend. Well, I don't think they really wanted to offend anybody, like, s- severely. Maybe a little bit of offense to the Christians, but they didn't want to offend anyone severely. They just wanted to, you know, make a funny comedy. Um, then I agree that, like, not all sketches were, like, amazing, but, like, it, it was okay, because immediately after, there'd be another sketch to look forward to, that one, a one that actually did work. Uh, Roger Ebert gave the film three stars out of four, writing, What's endearing about the Pythons is their good cheer, their irreverence, their willingness to allow comic situations to develop through it. A gradual accumulation of small insanities. I pretty much agree with that. I it's just talking about how like uh, you know Monty Python developed their sketches in, in the writing, and I really agree that they they do a really good job of writing the sketches, especially um, with you know the development of the situations. Like they can just find something you know small, and you know with through the writing they develop it into this big funny you know comedic thing that. You, you're, you're cracking up at. Uh, those are a couple of positive critical quotes. Uh, there's one here, for a negative one. Gary Arnold of the Washington Post had a negative opinion of the film, writing that it was a cruel fiction to foster the delusion that Brian is bristling with blasphemous nifties and throbbing with impious wit. If only it were, one might find it easier to keep from nodding off. The language is a little complicated here, but I assume... Gary here is criticizing the character of Brian and, you know, how it's uh, making him, making him sleepy. I'm not really sure what he's 
really talk about it. I have to go over that a little closely. Uh, but I think the general consensus for for critics, um, or actual film critics, was that it, it was good. Um, when I say critics, there's probably a lot of religious people who critic, um, you know, criticize the movie. But I wouldn't call them, you know, inherently film critics, probably because they only probably brought out, you know, the pitchforks just for this film, and not and they're not actually inherently film critics. But uh, he was Gary. There was actually a film critic. But I think the general consensus is is a positive one from critics and you know audiences alike, especially in modern times. Not so when it was released. I think you know criticism of the film was much more heavy-handed especially with the religion but you know nowadays i think it's it's much more chill and most people just you know see it as a comedy and find it quite funny to also add on the significance of the film i just want to mention the box office uh, the film had a budget of four million dollars and the cumulative worldwide gross was 36 million dollars uh, I also saw previously one sec. Yeah, the, uh, Wikipedia says that the film was a box office success and it was the fourth highest-grossing film in the United Kingdom in 1979, and it was also the highest-grossing British film in the United States that year. So it also was, you know, a financial success, which actually is a little surprising, especially with, you know, the controversy it caused at that time. But, uh, yeah, so it, it did do well. And now for some uh, uh, fun facts of the film. Again, these are just from IMDb. Let's just uh, read out a few. After the first take of the scene, where a nude Brian addresses the crowd from his window, Terry Jones pulled Graham Chapman aside and said, I think that we can see that you're not Jewish referring to Chapman being uncircumcised. It was corrected in subsequent takes with a rubber band. <laughs> so that's actually quite funny, and it's it's actually a little... Um, I, f- I found that quite surprising that they'd actually, you know, want to show him being circumcised, and especially to that, you know, um, point of detail. Like, you know, I, I assumed, you know, when I read that, I was, I was surprised, and I was like, oh, really? I didn't think that they'd pay that much attention to detail especially since you know they're doing a religious satire and they'd want it to be you know an accurate depiction of you know jewish men and i was i was actually quite surprised by that but i guess that's what they were going for they wanted to be more of an accurate depiction of jewish men so they put a rubber brand around his dick made him look circumcised that's actually a little uh, funny little point in detail to you know to show how like filmmakers when they have a problem with uh like a prop or like a set or a character, they come up with like uh, quick and easy ways to, you know, solve that problem. And that's just, you know, a funny and interesting, uh, uh, a funny, interesting problem, but also, you know, just a, a really unique way of, of solving it. So I find that's really like interesting how, like reading about filmmakers, you know, how they solve like small problems like that, especially that one, That that's actually a very interesting one. Uh, another fact to do with, that nude scene where you see uh, uh, Graham Chapman as Brian nude, there's... Here we go. When Brian appears nude in front of a huge crowd, James Pat, uh, Graham Chapman was actually nude in front of 2,000 people. 
Many Muslim women shrieked when they saw Chapman nude. <laughs> so that's actually quite funny. That's crazy. In front of 2,000 people. Man, I would... That would... That's just... That's legitimately it. A nightmare. Like, that... A nightmare, you know what I mean? Like, appearing nude in front of 2,000 people. Like, you have those dreams where you're, you're nude in public. But in front of 2,000 people? Oh, my God. I, I can... I can never do that. That's crazy. But that's actually quite funny how, you know, that they just had all those extras there and then and then they just plop it like a naked guy in front of all of them. They're like, oh shit, what the frig? You know, like, dude, there's a, a, a flipping naked guy, you know, in front of us. That's actually quite funny. Um, a few other fun facts. Here we go. Uh, Norway banned the film for one year for blasphemy then gave it an 18 rating and included a warning from the censors at the beginning. And uh, because of this, it has been marked in Sweden as the film that is so funny that it was banned in Norway. So I was uh, discussing that earlier, how it was uh, banned in uh, many countries, and that's actually quite funny and actually quite smart to, to use that as um, for their advantage and use it as a marketing tool to market the film. And I'm sure that probably you know, did wonders of marketing the film, you know, like, so funny, it was banned in a whole country. <laughs> so, they're smart, you know, whoever the marketing, te- marketing team for um, uh, the film was, you know, good job. <laughs> um, uh, here we go, here's another one. During the Venice Film Festival, the UAAR, uh, Italian Union of Rational Atheists and Agnostics, assigns the premier Brian... Brian Award to the most rationalist atheist movie presented to the festival. The name of the award is dedicated to the movie. <laughs> That's a little weird. Um, like naming. Well, it's not that weird. It's just kind of the award in itself is a little weird. Having the the most atheist movie, you know, encouraging, uh, like atheism. Like I'm probably an atheist myself, but it's, I just felt a little weird. Like, you know, you know, we want atheist. I don't. I'm not really sure if the Venice Film Festival is an atheist one or not, or that's just, like, the, um, the, the, the atheist union or whatever it was, but that's, uh, quite interesting, like, how they, they see Life of Brian as a very atheist film. I wouldn't, myself, you know, use it uh, in that sense. I wouldn't call it an inherently atheist film. I would call it, you know, a film that comments on religion and in some way criticizes criticizes it, but uh, I wouldn't call it an atheist film. Interesting, though, how people do. Um, Here's another one. Spike Milligan was on holiday in Tunisia when the film was being shot. When the Python team realized he was nearby, they offered him a part in the film. That's quite interesting. Uh, I remember seeing in the credits, you know, Spike Milligan, and I was like, wait a a second. Um, That's a poet, isn't it? And my mom was like, yeah, that's a poet. And uh, that's because I, I recognized him from a, a poem that I read a few years ago for some drama thing. Uh, it was a really good poem, actually. It was quite funny and interesting. And I was like, oh, is he a member of uh, Monty Python? But he's not actually a member. I, I searched up later. He's just um, he's just an actor and a poet. I don't remember what part he was in, in the film, but it's quite interesting. And they were like, oh, this guy's on holiday, like, like near us. Let's put him in the film. And they just put him, I read that they put him on just some, just the scene that they happened to be filming that day. They were just like, oh, you can play that character. 
So I don't remember or don't know what the scene was, but you know, that's an interesting, like, um, way of you know, implementing the cameo. Just being like, oh, he's nearby. Let's put him in. Uh, uh, here's another one. Terry Jones, who plays Graham Chapman's mother, Brian's mother, is not actually a man, but is also 13 months younger than Chapman. Uh, yeah, so that, like, the Terry uh, Jones role when he plays uh, Brian's mother, <laughs> it's really quite funny how, you know, they're getting a, playing a man to play a woman, and it's, it's so, like, it's, it's so absurd. Oh, it's not, like, so absurd, it, like, at first, I was, like, taken out of the movie a little bit. Then I was like, oh, wait, no, this this works much better if it's played by a man. That sounds a little sexist, but no. Like, it, the character works much better because it just adds to, like, the, the comedic effect of it. And he plays it really well. Like, obviously, exaggerated, but, like, in a comedic way that, you know, works really well. So that was uh, Terry Jones who played the mother, and I think he was the director as well. Uh, the opening credits are presented as an elaborate Terry Gilliam animated sequence of Roman temples being destroyed. That's not as interesting, but that's uh, another thing I read about how they, Terry Gilliam and Terry Jones had some small differences on the uh, Holy Grail set because they were co-directing. So on this one, they decided you know just Terry Jones to direct, and then Terry, Terry Gilliam didn't direct. He only directed a, a couple scenes in the film, but the main director was... Terry Jones, um, so I assume the animated sequences were, um, those, those scenes that he did direct. Uh, again, it was shot on location in Tunisia, so that was, that was actually really cool. I assumed it would be, I knew it was shot on location when you watch a film, it's pretty obvious, but, uh, I didn't know it was Tunisia, I assumed it would just be, like, Israel or one of those countries, but, yeah, so, Tunisia. I'm pretty sure Tunisia was where, uh, uh, Star Wars Episode 1 was shot, no, not Episode 1, sorry, Episode 4, A New Hope, uh, was shot, you know, the, um, what was it, the taboo, yeah, here we go, Star Wars Tunisia, visiting the Star Wars sets of Southern Tunisia, Tatooine was the first planet to be introduced in the original movie, Star Wars Episode IV, and of the 10 other Star Wars movies made to date, Four were partially filmed in southern Tunisia. So yeah, so uh, that's where they film uh, for the Tatooine scenes in Star Wars. Tunisia is where they film it. So yes, Tunisia is probably it seems like a um, you know good place for um, film location. Uh, sorry, film production, especially if you want that kind of uh, desert set. I might want to look into that later. Anyway, I think. I think that's about it of what I have to say on Life of Brian. Um, I think that I kind of forgot at the start to do a recommendability rate, like a, uh, so not a recommendability, that's not a word, uh, a recommendation rate, like at the start how I mentioned I wanted to do a recommendation rate, and I did forget to do it just now for that review. But uh, I'll plop it in here. Uh, yeah, so I definitely recommend this movie. Um, if you're looking for like a funny comedy, yeah, go for it. Uh, I think most people would enjoy this movie, except if you're like very religious, then I'd say avoid this movie. Uh, if you're listening right now and you are seriously religious, I don't think anyone listening to the, this podcast is probably seriously religious. They're not going to go on a podcast called Fricked Up 
for film. <laughs> anyway, uh, if you're even like if you're casually religious, I think you actually won't enjoy it. Like just people with you know casually religious, I think they'd still enjoy it. So I think most people would would really enjoy this. So I do recommend this movie. Uh, see it. It's not completely urgent that you see it, but uh, you know, see it in your lifetime definitely. So I'd give it a, a recommendation of of four out of five, and that uh, that rating is not a critical rating, simply a recommendation rate uh, for the audience. So it's not my critical uh, rating. Awesome. I think I think that's all I have to say. On to the uh, next section of the podcast. All right, Disenchantment. This is an American uh, animated fantasy sitcom. I think that's what you'd call it. Uh, it's from this year, 2018. It was released a couple months ago, and it, uh, it was released on uh, Netflix. And uh, the reason I watched this, oh well, I first heard about it when I was looking like at Eric Andre's future projects because uh, I'm a big fan of Eric Andre, especially the Eric Andre show. Uh, I love that show so much. It's so funny. It, it, it's amazing. It's 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 genius, uh, and I love Eric Andre. He's a he was a really funny guy, um, really great comedian, and uh, so basically I was looking at his future projects and I saw this uh, Disenchantment, and then immediately I saw like Matt Groening, and I was like, oh shit, and I realized that it's uh it, it's by Matt Groening and it's you know, who is the creator of uh, Simpsons and Futurama, and I saw immediately, you know, the shots, and I was like, it, it looks like the Simpsons animated style, and I was like. It all came together, and I was like, oh, shit, this sounds friggin' awesome. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that was, like, a couple months before it was released, and then, you know, it was, it was released, and I watched maybe an episode or two um, for each day. I had a couple, like, a few days in between, like, certain episodes. It was scattered over, like, two or three weeks, and uh, maybe I'd watch a couple episodes in one day or just one episode in one day and take a break for an episode couple days but it was scattered over like two weeks it was eight episodes in total uh i don't want to get into spoilers in this episode so there'll be no spoilers for this uh this review but anyway uh what did i think of it i uh i i enjoyed it i was uh it was mildly enjoyable i think it's it's main kind of uh, purpose for not main purpose of the show but I think, uh, like, how you can view the show, I think, basically, it's it's more for casual viewing. So don't expect anything really amazing. I think this is just a show that you can, you know, watch for casual viewing. Like Simpsons and like Futurama. In my opinion, the, the season, like, wasn't as good as, you know, those other shows. Well, not, like, in general. I, I enjoyed this show more than, you know, the the most recent seasons of Simpsons. I don't watch that much Simpsons or Futurama, but, you know, I've watched, like, a, f- a few episodes of, of each uh, here and there. And I've seen, like, some of the new episodes of Simpsons, and I do enjoy Disenchantment better, but obviously Simpsons is such a great show in, in particular seasons, and Disenchantment doesn't, like, reach um, those levels uh, for each, either Simpsons or Futurama. But I still really enjoyed it. Like, I saw uh, I saw someone, you know, trashing this show 
on a, uh, a Facebook uh, film posting group, I saw someone go, oh, I love Simpsons, I love Futurama, but I just can't watch Disenchantment, it's so bad. And I, was, and I was watching it at the same time, and I was like, what? It's not. I don't understand why, why I think it's so bad. It's like, it's pretty much the same level as, you know, Simpsons or Futurama. Um, like, it is different, uh, especially to do with the, the story structure. Like, you can't explicitly put on, you know, any episode of the season and, like, understand completely what's going on. You know, with Simpsons or Futurama, most of the episodes, you can just pop on any random episode and, you know, probably understand where it's going and, you know, what's kind of happening. But I think if you were to put on any kind of episode from Disenchantment, it, it wouldn't make as much sense. But, um, this, I think that's because it's released on Netflix and, people would watch it that way, uh, you know, would watch it, uh, wouldn't watch it, like, randomly episodes like you would with Simpsons or Futurama, which have reruns on TV and various other things, uh, Disenchantment, I assume, it's made for a streaming service, right? They designed it because they knew it would be on a streaming service, and you could watch it linear, uh, like, in a linear way with episode one, episode two, episode three, so, like, because a lot of the stories, um, would cover, like, over two, or like three episodes and basically is it's not so much of an overarching story in the whole season but there is in like certain blocks of two or three episodes so it is different with the story structure but it is justifiably different um with that story structure because it's not like simpsons of futurama where it's where it's on tv it's on a streaming service um i i did find it interesting how they did have kind of like i said not an real strong story over the whole season but they in general they did have kind of a an actual story over the whole season like with the uh the ending of of the season you know it actually had a proper uh beginning and ending i think the beginning is is justifiable with any kind of show like futurama you have the beginning like very first episode where you see fry and you know go into the future and the very first episode of Disenchantment where you meet all the characters and obviously that's just viable but then you have an actual ending and I I'm not completely sure if this is different to Simpsons or Futurama because uh to be honest I never really watched a full seasons of full season of Simpsons or Futurama in in a linear way you know what I mean so I, I never knew like I, I kind of watched it random like randomly with the episodes scattered around and reruns and various other like that's that's kind of how i watched um those shows so i don't know if they had an overarching story in those uh in those seasons but disenchantment kind of had a a slight story especially to do with the the ending uh like i said this is a comedy show i i didn't find it that funny to be honest i'm i'm gonna be honest i i didn't laugh out laugh out loud like at all very much but it's still definitely like comedic in, in the way of tone and you know the genre and like basically tone but I, I didn't find it that funny but then I look back at like episodes of Futurama and Simpsons and I think did I laugh out loud at those ones either no maybe maybe like old episodes of Simpsons like some of the smart jokes I, I laugh out loud because those are actually really well written, but um, especially with new episodes of Simpsons and 
Now, Futurama, I don't remember laughing out that much. I still really enjoyed it. I love Futurama. Um, but I didn't laugh, like, out loud a lot. So I'm like, actually, it's it's not, like, that, like, much different to those shows. Uh, the characters uh, in the show are all, all pretty good. I, I found them, you know, like, you know, distinct and uh, enjoyable. I found the character of Alpha slightly annoying at times, but like overall, I actually enjoyed it, and especially the, the voice acting from Nat Faxon, who I um was a became aware of, who I became aware of, uh, by uh, the show Friends from College, I think it was called. Uh, that's another Netflix show. He was on that, and he was pretty good in that, and I enjoyed that show. Uh, check that out. Um. So I was recognized his voice, and I searched it up, and I was like, "Oh, of course, that's what it's from." Uh, on the topic of voice acting, I found the voice acting was was pretty good. I uh, I thought that some of the voices were a little distracting because they were too similar to uh, the Futurama voices. I didn't find any that similar to the Simpsons voices, but definitely the Futurama ones. Uh, I found, like, the wizard was very similar to the professor, I assume, because of the same voice actor, and Matt Groening probably chose a lot of the same voice actors. And uh, the king was similar to a Futurama voice. I can't tell what it was, but some of the voices were too similar to Futurama, and it was, it was a little distracting. Uh, Eric Andre's voice acting was good. Um, to me, I found it a little underwhelming, and I think that was just because I love him so much and I was expecting, you know, a little too much from him. Like, I was expecting great stuff because, I've, you know, I watch the Eric Andre show and I see great stuff from him. So, I don't know, I maybe, I think I was expecting too much. But, like, what can you do that's amazing with the voice acting? You know, it's just it's just voice acting. Like, it, it's talent. Like, and he's definitely good at it. But, like, there's not much you can do with, you know, that. So, I don't know, I was just expecting something great, but uh, obviously I can see now you can't expect something, like, amazing from him. And uh, and it, it also helped me to, you know, be confident that I'll know he'll do well in, uh, in Lion King, because he's in the new Lion King film, and now that we've seen, uh, like, him do voice acting, and he's actually good at it, um, you know, we'll know he'll do well in Lion King. And it'll also, uh, like, make me aware that... The, him, his role in Lion King won't be great either. It'll just be another voice acting role. I'm sure it'll be good voice acting, but I, I need not to expect too much from him in Lion King either. Uh, the fantasy world of the show I found engaging and interesting. Uh, it wasn't just like an original and a copy of all generic fantasy worlds. It had some distinct, you know, features and some kind of new, or slightly original. Uh, concepts, but I, I do have kind of a soft spot for fantasy like that, so I don't know if that's just my taste coming into play, but I really enjoy the, the fantasy concepts and the fantasy world. Um, speaking on the fantasy and the, the landscapes of of the show, like the landscape shots, uh, I like the animation because it's mostly simple, like 2D you know, similar to Simpsons Futurama, I didn't see any, like, bad animation, um, but, like, speaking on the fantasy landscape sweeping shots, where they switch to some kind of 3D, uh, mixed with, like, a 
mixed of 3D and 2D style, and they have these big landscape shots when they're like panning across the city. I don't really know how to describe it, I but I found those really cool. I, yeah, I really like them. Like I saw them in the trailer, and I was like, "Whoa, that's that's awesome." And maybe maybe it takes you out a little, but I I I wouldn't say it takes you out, but like it just kind of keeps you engaged because like, oh, that's a cool shot. Uh, so yeah, that's kind of most of my review. If I were to, to recommend it, uh, give it a recommendation rate of probably two and a half out of five, uh, I recommend it purely as just like a casual viewing, you know, something light to watch when you're like, oh, I just want something light to watch, you know, yeah, just keep me entertained, um, slightly entertained. And I'm sure it'll do the job, because it, it did do the job with me. I just, like, watched it when I was, like, ah, uh, you know, eating my soup. And I was, like, oh, I need something to watch. And I was, like, ooh, disenchantment. And I enjoyed it, and, you know, it was good. Just don't expect it to make you fall on the floor laughing, or l- really laugh at all. Like, it'll keep you entertained, but I can't imagine it'll make many people, you know, laugh out loud. So don't don't expect too much from it. So that's the uh, the review of uh, um, Disenchantment. So sorry if I uh, repeated myself too much in this episode. Very sorry. I'm trying to, you know, work on that. Uh, obviously, the only way I can get better is if I practice and actually do these podcasts. So uh, just bear with me while I, you know, have these kind of these kind of issues and sort them out. Uh, I just wanted to uh, mention what I'll be reviewing and what I've been watching recently and yeah, review be reviewing in the, the next few episodes. Um, in the next couple episodes, in the next episode, I'll talk about Children of Men, the, the 2006 film, I think it is. I watched that a couple of weeks ago. Really enjoyed it. Uh, I'll talk about that. I'll probably talk about the filmmaking experience that I was going to talk about this week as well. Then we'll get into that next week and possibly uh, uh, Seven Psychopaths. And then the week after that, or not the week, or just the next episode, I'll talk about Train Spotting. I also watched that recently. And then I'll probably talk about a couple of shows or maybe a movie or a show or something that I watched recently. And those. Uh, shows will either be Breaking Bad Season 1, which I watched or finished last night, really enjoyed it, I'll talk about that, and also Ozark Season 1, which I'm one episode away from finishing, Uh, so those two shows, I actually enjoyed that as well, a lot, so I'll talk about those two shows, maybe in the next, I don't know, couple episodes, I'll decide later, but that'll be... Uh, upcoming in the next few episodes. There's also a few movies I watched recently. Uh, I watched Searching. I might talk about that. Uh, it was the the film that's from like entirely from a computer screen. Uh, I might talk about that. I also watched a couple of other ones, which I don't want to get into too much. But uh, I'll decide later. So those are the some of the films and shows that you, you can look forward to me talking about in the next few episodes. Just a couple of things I want to uh, just address before I finish the episode uh, to do with the release. Uh, episode 1, while I'm recording this, it, I don't think it is up anywhere at all. Uh, I'm currently at my, my batch 
Uh, it's on a Sunday Sunday night, and on Friday before I left to my batch, I left it uploading on SoundCloud, the first episode. And I was like, oh, it'll be all good. Uh, it'll just upload itself. And then I checked, you know, yesterday, and it wasn't up. So there's some issue with that, and I'll try and get that sorted. Obviously, when you're listening to this, it should already be sorted and be up on SoundCloud and YouTube. And by, like, the third or fourth episode... Maybe I'll try get it up to on Apple iTunes because that's the goal. Get it on iTunes. I think that's the the best podcast uh, streaming service, whatever you call it, the best podcast platform. And I'm gonna try get on that. So when I do achieve that, that'll be great. Um, anything else to mention? I think I think I've addressed pretty much everything. Again, I'm sorry if there are like any or lots of issues in these podcasts. I'm trying to get better. I know there's a lot of sound issues, especially with this creaking chair. It's bloody annoying. I don't have any other chair to use, and I'm sorry about that. Uh, and, uh, yeah, any other sound issues, or especially issues with me repeating myself and rambling, I am so sorry. Very sorry. Um, I do, you know, have problems with trying to talk, and it's, it's actually very hard. It's much harder than I thought it was to do this podcast, and, you know, talk constantly for one and a half hours there's, there's a lot of times where I just pause and I'm like uh, what the fuck do I say and uh, I don't really know so obviously you know there's only one way I can you know get better is by keep you know if I keep doing it and learning from my mistakes and you know practicing and trying to get better uh so there's a lot of uh things I'm, I'm doing to get better I'm writing notes and you know finding the structure and I'm learning you know like the runtime and how much I actually talk for, and I'm trying, starting to learn, you know, how, like, how much I'll talk about things and runtime, and I'm also learning about, you know, editing the audio. I'm starting to edit the podcast to make them, make the pace better and stop me from repeating myself. Like last episode, I did a little, little bit of editing, but I'm, I'm, I'm learning more audio editing, so hopefully that'll improve it a bit. And I'm also you know, trying to uh, work on my my, vo- my vocals because a lot of mumbling or if I, you know, stumble over a word. Now I'm just criticizing myself to the point of just, you know, it's just too much. So I'm going to stop criticizing my- myself and go be positive. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. But uh, yes, I'm going to end the podcast. Yeah. Oh, oh, one last thing to address uh, about comedy in these podcasts I tried this episode to put a little bit more comedy and hopefully in the future episodes I'll get better at it so uh, let me know any comments any feedback any criticism anything at all Uh, let me know in the comments down below Uh, any questions you have I can address them in the podcast whatever let let me know in the comments down below on uh, YouTube or SoundCloud or send me a tweet at uh, Jamish M-M, that's J-A-M-I-S-H-M-M. Uh, I'll eventually create a, you know, a Twitter account just for Fricked, just for the podcast. But for now, uh, i got to stop talking and uh, go sleep. So uh, thank you so much for watching. See you next episode. Goodbye. <laughs>